Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into uh, Paul's second letter to the Church of Corinth. And as we have been touching upon these spiritual fruits of peace and joy, I did receive a question from you uh, on joy, and I think a very important question, and the question was this, what about those who are more introverted? Are they also expected to live in this robust joy? And I like that question because clearly you are thinking critically, um, but you also, I think, address something that is very pressing today, and that is, is God calling us to be someone who we are not? Well, to answer that question, I want to go to what Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI called the first proclamation of the New Testament. What did the angel Gabriel say to Mary? Hail, full of grace. The Greek there is kekartomene. Now, we translate that as hail, full of grace, right? The, the Greek root there is charis, grace, but also rejoice, O highly favored one. Why? Because the root word to rejoice or joy is also caries, huh? <laughs> so in the light of that, again, it is Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI that says, we are made to see the unique relationship, the unique bond that exists between grace and joy. That if you are one who is filled with the plentitude of grace, you are also one who is filled with joy. Now, does this mean you have to be bouncing off the walls everywhere you go? Not necessarily, but remember, the smile is an outward sign of what? That deep interior peace, yes, as we noted yesterday, but also joy. It is, we could say, the smile, a sacrament of joy. So you can be an introverted person. You can be someone who is more quiet and yet at the same time be joyful, be life-giving. We forget that uh, St. John Paul II was a cloistered at heart, right? He was a man who was once uh, regarded as a high introvert. But in fact, we don't think about that anymore because later in life he became a, a much more charismatic man. It doesn't mean that he lost his sense of what it means to be still and be quiet before God. No, in point of fact, it was because he was <laughs> still and quiet before God that he would glow with fervor because that glow comes from that deeper sense of contemplation. So my response to you would be, not only are you called to be joy-filled, but out from that deeper contemplation, which tends to be something easier for the introverted personality, you will be more joy-filled, because contemplation precedes what is authentic joy. Now, I've used the word cloister. <laughs> I'm thinking about my sister, who is a Carmelite cloistered nun. What does that mean for those of you who might not be familiar with such language? Um, in the Catholic Church, there are what we call religious communities who devote their lives to poverty, chastity, obedience, and prayer and service. And some of those religious communities are 
cloistered. That means they are removed from the world. There is a very particular and unique vocation for anyone who's called to the cloistered life because ultimately they are set apart in an entirely different way. They are literally set apart perpetually. And certainly this is something we regard as a special vocation. Now what's interesting about this and why I raise this now is because every time I go to visit my Carmelite cloistered sister, she is always so joy-filled. Now, honestly, she is a personality who is always joyful, but she is even more joyful because of how she spends her days, not only deep in contemplation, but at the service of God. Yes, behind walls, but make no mistake about it, my friends, she is offering up a profound sacrifice. I remember I was talking about this uh, when I was teaching junior high at a Catholic school, and my students didn't get it. So I reached out to some parents, and together we came up with the idea of going to visit my sister up in the hills of Northern California, tucked away, right? We all went up there, the whole class, all the parents, and I remember on the drive up, I was thinking to myself, you know, there are going to be about 30, 35 of us, and I don't know if I've thought this through, (laughs) because there isn't a whole lot of room in these rooms that we go into to actually spend time and visit with the Carmelite cloister nuns. Well, as it turns out, there was very little room, and we were stuffed in there like sardines. I had them looking at me. You know, Joe, I don't know if this was the best idea. And then, just not my sister, but all the nuns started coming in one by one. And there's 15 in this community. And let me tell you something, my friends. It was like TNT went off. There was so much enthusiasm. There was so much excitement. There was so much joy coming from these women who spend their days devoted to prayer and service. And I will never forget the first question that one of my students asked. Why are you so joy-filled? And every one of those sisters jumped to answer the question because they are doing what Jesus Christ has asked them to do. They are at literally the feet of Jesus Christ, praying and working. Amen to that. It was such a beautiful testimony to how joy comes from that deeper sense of contemplation. And yes, there are a great number of sisters there that certainly would be considered more introverted, if you will. You know, in this reflection on joy, also, how can you not think about the adoration of the Magi, where upon finding the infant King Jesus, what do we read in the Gospel of Matthew? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I've always loved that verse because it is the English trying to translate a very robust Greek phrase. The Greek language is very economical, usually one, two, maybe three syllables. This particular Greek phrase is one of multiple syllables, 11 syllables, a very robust, a very explosive Greek. And so in the English, we translate it as, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's this repetitious way of speaking to what they experienced when they encountered our Lord. What we are made to see is that when we encounter Christ authentically, what do we do? We rejoice. If you are someone who is more introverted, I want you to think about a time where you have been excited, something that happened in your life. Take that 
and multiply it a hundredfold. That's what it would be if you encountered Christ the way the Magi encountered Christ. Would you be joy-filled? Of course you would. Of course you would. All right. So very <laughs> important. Now, let us get back into 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll, we'll probably get into, I should make note of something here as I'm looking at this. I read up to, let's see, verse 24 yesterday, and the reality is verse 24 kind of spills into chapter 2. We have to remember that we didn't get chapters to the sacred text until the 13th century, right? I've talked about this in great detail before. And then also verses until the 16th century. So when you read sacred scripture, yes, we say, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, and we can say that because we now have chapters and verses. But in the initial reading of the text, you know, <laughs> we can never say that, right? Now we have chapters and verses where they are because there's natural stopping points. I get that. But what it can lead to is a failure to read one verse in light of the other as we ought. So as I stopped at verse 24 yesterday, really, <laughs> I should have stopped at verse 22 because it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 that really, again, spills into chapter 2 and ends with verse 11. So I will go ahead and read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 through chapter 2, verse 11. Okay, so if you have your Bibles out there, if you want to pull out your text to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith. We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. But if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to you all. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, to keep Satan from gaining the advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his designs. All right, there is a lot there. And one of the things I want to do this evening is uh, speak to certainly what Paul is saying here as it relates to, well, what we were just talking about, joy, um, but also the importance of forgiveness as it relates to how Satan works. Now, Paul reminds the community that his joy and theirs are, what, intimately connected. To some ears, his words may sound to some degree self-serving, as if the real issue were his joy. Verse 3, my friends, however, must be interpreted in light of Paul's opening statement. Recall that in chapter 1, verse 14, he reminded the Corinthians that they are to be what? His boast and vice versa. 
That is to say, both parties can justly take pride and rejoice before God in what God is accomplishing, namely that through Paul's apostolic labors of laying a foundation, the church in Corinth has become a temple of God, a people of whom the Holy Spirit dwells. What Paul wants us to see is that overarching principle of how God works, especially as it relates to love. You want more love? Give love away. Huh? You want more joy? Give joy away. You want to be forgiven? Forgive. Okay? You have to empty so that God might fill you up. That is the principle of what you feed grows, and one that is very, very important. Now, I did want to talk about two spiritual works of mercy, and I know I've talked about all of the works of mercy before, but I did want to re-engage two spiritual works of mercy in the light of St. Paul's words, and those two spiritual works of mercy are bearing wrongs patiently and forgiving offenses willingly. And we're going to draw in some degree from Monsignor Pope. He waxes eloquently about a great number of things, <laughs> and he has uh, written some pieces on the works of mercy, so we will draw a little bit from him. So first, bearing wrongs patiently. Here is perhaps, as some have suggested, and as Monsignor Pope notes, the most revolutionary of the spiritual works of mercy. Why? Because it is the one tied most directly to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To decide to bear wrongs patiently is nothing less than to declare a revolution and to wage a very, we could say, paradoxical counteroffensive against this world and its economy of anger. Monsignor Pope writes here, there is a cycle of violence and retribution in which the devil seeks to engage us. And for this reason, <laughs> we talk about it. What did St. Paul just say? We don't want to give Satan an inch. The cycle begins with one person harming or slighting another, does it not? perhaps tempted to do so by the devil or by the world or by the flesh, manipulated by the devil. And then what happens? What happens, my friends? The harm having been worked, the victim retaliates and the problem escalates. Does, does this sound familiar? Meanwhile, Satan observes from the wings with delight as he reaps his bountiful harvest of anger, fear, bitterness, violence. And through such cycles, he is able to destroy what? Friendships, families, cultures, nations. Does this not sound familiar? Let's put it plainly, my friends. We live in the day and age where what we are talking about right now is front and center, front and center. This is Satan's economy and its currency is hatred and revenge. He would have us develop grievances. He would have us develop fears. And he would have us fill our coffers with memories of past wrongs stretching back as far as our memory can take us. So clever are Satan's marketers that those who are consumers and suppliers think their vengeance is righteous, even holy. And my dear friends, don't be fooled. Just anger is something real. But you better re-examine what it means to say just anger, because far too often our anger is fueled by vengeance. And if it is so, don't call it holy. 
And so if we don't do anything about it, the economy of Satan grows and grows, fueled by this vengeance, bankrolled by its grievances. Now, the Christian who bears wrongs patiently engages in the revolutionary act of saying, even if on a small scale, the cycle of violence, the cycle of anger, the cycle of retribution ends with me. It is like throwing a wrench into the gears of Satan's economy. Even if it is just the bearing of very small wrongs, at the very least we can say it slows the machine of hatred and retribution and causes the economy of Satan to grind more slowly. This is a paradoxical act of sabotage against the adversary. Is this not the same paradox we see on the cross where Christ won by bearing patiently and bravely the venom? Didn't we talk about venom recently? By bearing patiently and bravely the hatred, the violence of this world to the very end? You see, my friends, Jesus bore it not by retaliating, not by hating, but by loving and by bearing and enduring unto the end. Every Christian who bears wrongs patiently increases the size of that cross exponentially by the fact that Christ unites our sufferings to his. And here we ought to note the logic of this revolution. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hatred cannot drive out hatred. Only love can do that. Pride cannot drive out pride. Only humility can do that. And thus Jesus and every Christian who bears wrongs patiently drives out darkness by light, hatred by love, and pride by humility. Now I suppose the question to be asked is, such a stance to be absolute. Must we bear every wrong patiently? No, no. There are times when we must defend ourselves and others, when the only way to repel the grave harm caused by a serious injustice is to disable it and to remove it. There are times when we must actively resist evil and stand in its way. But in all of this, what we are made to see is that, that retaliation must not be our goal. Rather, our goal must be justice, established in love and respect, with a desire to end the cycle, you see, not merely to continue it as a victor, claiming that, no, we have won. Isn't that what it's about far too often? I want to get in the last word. I want to make sure that I'm right. I want to make sure that I'm the, the person who's winning. Really? Is this the game we're going to play? Because, my dear friends, your partner in this game is the adversary. Essentially, my friends, evil is to be resisted and robbed of further prey. If I seek to conquer and destroy evil too easily, I can become the very evil I seek to destroy, even as I declare my victory. The evil still lives to strike again. But worse yet, it now lives in my heart. So the cycle must end. We must bear wrongs patiently. We must say, it ends with me. I will take the blow like my Savior on the cross. And like my Savior on the cross, I will not return it. And my friends, this does not make you spineless. But in the light of Christian revelation, courageous. St. Paul wasn't spineless. He was courageous. To bear wrongs patiently is to declare a revolution against Satan's regime. 
to break the cycle of his economy and say, the cycle of violence and revenge ends with me right here and now. And my dear friends, if you are about to lose your patience with someone, maybe it might help you to think about how God has been patient with you. (laughs) At least that helps me. All right, so a powerful spiritual work of mercy that we ought to consider, especially in the light of St. Paul's words, because, well, what does he say? What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ to keep Satan from gaining the advantage over us. And so it is. We forgive. What does it mean to forgive? Here I have a definition from a pair of uh, psychologists, Robert N. Wright and Joanna North. I, I love this definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a willingness to abandon one's right to resentment, negative judgment, and indifferent behavior towards one who unjustly injured us while fostering the undeserved qualities of compassion, generosity, and even love towards him or her. You know, my friends, forgiveness is often rejected because of anger. And it would seem that anger is rooted in two things. And this is what Monsignor Pope has to say. First, that the call to forgive implies some dishonoring or diminishing of the pain or injustice someone has experienced. And second, that it seems to imply there is a requirement to stay in or resume relationships that are poisonous or dysfunctional. But forgiveness is need not apply to either of these. Forgiveness, my friends, is a concept that is often misunderstood. Many people interpret forgiveness as a work they must do out of their own power rather than as a gift to be received from God. What have we said before about forgiveness? Forgiveness is first a grace. What does Mark tell us? (laughs) Forgiveness is a divine act. The first act of forgiveness is to allow our hearts to be transformed in God's grace, in God's love. Only then can we begin to learn the supernatural language of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a work of God within us, whereby God acts to free us from the poisonous effects of bitterness and grief that often accompany the harm that has been inflicted upon us. Here we should see the interconnectedness between this work of mercy— forgiving offenses willingly, and bearing wrongs patiently. Once we allow God in, the bitterness and grief over time begins to dissipate. Time is our ally, my friends, if we let God in. If we don't forgive, what are we left with? Weeks will pass by, months will pass by, and tragically years will pass by. And we are still stuck on the one day that that we've been hurt that one day where all went wrong. But God wants to transform our understanding of time and how we think about time, it will change. We will see time as our ally because if we are doing what we need to do, then the person who we have offended, they will heal. We just need to make sure that we don't get in the way of that healing. We need to allow the divine physician to work. So forgiveness is a letting go of the need to change the past. Obviously, we cannot change the past. We cannot change what has happened. But we too easily think that ruminating over past hurts will somehow change what has happened or even get back at the other person. Brothers and sisters, on absolute terms, it can't. It's it's ontologically impossible. Clinging to our hurt and anger, 
understandable though it may be, only harms us. Thus, we could say forgiveness is first for us more so than for the other because it frees us to love as we ought. In calling us to forgive, God is offering us the gift to be free of a great deal of poison and of a costly emotional state that robs us of our joy and strength. Brothers and sisters, carrying anger and hurt is like lugging around 500 pounds wherever you go. What a relief it is to just be free of such weight. And this is what God offers when he gives us the grace to forgive, to let go of the need to change the past, to let go of the desire for others to suffer because of what they have done to us. What do we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 18? If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. Listen to St. Paul's words that we just read. And anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive what I have forgiven. If I have forgiven anything has been for your sake and the presence of Christ has been for your sake, has been for your freedom. Don't give Satan the advantage. Forgiveness is a spiritual work of mercy towards others, but first ourselves. Nursing grudges saps us of our strength. It stresses us out. (laughs) It vexes us. Receiving this gift to forgive is a great mercy. And what else? (laughs) Should not our energy be directed in other areas? It's a waste of time. Let God work. Adhere to St. Paul's words and this summoning to forgive. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. Heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.